Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. On this episode, I'm joined by expert Kate Bazanson. She's a professor and associate dean of social sciences at Brock University, and she's the lead author of a recent article for First Policy Response. You can find it at policyresponse.ca called Care at the Core, focused on how and why childcare should be at the center of recovery efforts to COVID-19. Kate, thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. So you wrote recently in relation to childcare and the pandemic, why childcare? One of the things that this pandemic has revealed is that care is really at the core of what is holding our economy and our social systems together. And we see that in lots of ways in the sort of formal paid care arena, what we've determined to be essential services are largely care work services. So we think about childcare, we think about healthcare, we think about the range of social care services, especially in long-term care. We also think about the kind of food services and precarious work and the precarious work conditions that are associated with those. And we also could think about care in the sense that we have a large portion of the population that's either been called out of work or forced out of work to care in the home, especially when education, schools, and childcare centers were closed, and then later as the economy basically started to go on pause. So childcare obviously emerges as one of many features in this sort of care universe that is really at the center of how we're navigating. We're parenting off the side of our desk, we're trying to get all of our work done, but we also know that when the economy starts to move again, we need to be able to go to work and we need an architecture of care in place to allow parents to go to work. And there are some concerns that that care may not be available in the short term. And there are concerns that as we build towards recovery, if we don't build that care infrastructure, we won't get the recovery that we need. It's funny when we talk about essential work is often underpaid work. And, and you spoke about or wrote about the invisible nature of care work. It's not just childcare, of course. I was speaking to a staff member the other day who said he would pay $200 for a haircut if he was able to. And so our valuation of different kinds of work, including, of course, care work, has yeah. shifted significantly, I think, in, in the course of this pandemic. We've better than ever realized its real value. But the provincial plans that we are starting to see in terms of reopening the economy, childcare does not seem to be an early, a very early priority in a way that it should be. It absolutely has to be, and for all kinds of reasons. One of the things that is probably important as a framing mechanism to thinking about this is the following. This is not like any other economic crisis that we've experienced. So most of the economic downturns that we've experienced have emanated from the financial sector. This is not the 2008 recession. This is a healthcare-driven, shutdown kind of recession. It is also, unlike other recessions, hit women's work much harder than men's. So 62% of those who lost employment in the first month that we have data for this were women. It was the retail and service sector where women are overrepresented that was particularly hard hit. It's that sector actually that's gonna be hard, one of the hardest to bring back online. As we're thinking about the tools that we need to pull together, we can't be thinking about using the same tools that we used for a recession that largely hit, for example, male employment, like the 2008 recession. So the remedy for that was let's build roads, let's build bridges, let's get jobs moving. 
Well, if you focus on built infrastructure as your solution, you're going to miss the majority of the population whose work needs stimulus, and that's women's work. And it's a complicated and very different situation that we're facing. Childcare, you know, includes both built infrastructure, new centers, retrofits, but also has critical social infrastructure. In addition to ensuring that parents can go back to work, it creates other jobs as well. So what does a childcare stimulus look like then? So there are sort of two stages that I think are really important. The first is, and this is in the really immediate term, childcare centers are really diverse. Some of it is for profit, some of it is not for profit, some takes place in centers, some takes place in homes. Very little of it receives public funding. The vast majority of childcare centers run almost exclusively on parent fees. Sometimes there are some wage subsidies that they also receive. So here we have this moment where, except for essential services, and there's childcare services being provided to those who are deemed essential workers, so except for those, there's a hold on the sector. So they're not able to meet those operating costs without those parent fees. They're not able to retain their labor force. And we have a potential, a likely a scenario in which once we hope to return, those spaces are not gonna be available for the parents who need them, for the kids to have the teachers to go back to the teachers that they had before. And let's remember, this is hitting kids just as hard as it's hitting the grown-ups. But it's also that those centers themselves may not be able to meet their financial obligations to stay open. The question that I think we should ask ourselves, and it's a question I always want to ask when we talk about childcare, is would we honestly expect that our kids' school wouldn't be there, that we wouldn't somehow collectively find the resources to say yes, the actual school where the teachers and the students go will be taken care of and we will backstop that so it stays in place. I don't know why we, we think about childcare differently. It's part of our collective approach to have this ad hoc patchwork approach to childcare. It is the magic lever that facilitates our capacity to be able to engage and re-engage or sustain our relationship with the labor market. We wouldn't expect a local school here in Beaches East York to apply for the wage subsidy or to apply for the rent assistance but the for-profit model we might expect to apply for, for those measures. So do you distinguish between nonprofit and for-profit for the purposes of public stimulus? So I guess I would say my personal view is let's get parents the care they need. If they already have services in place, let's make sure they're available. And then let's start right now thinking about what the next steps are. This December is the 50th anniversary of the Royal Commission on the Status of Women. The biggest recommendation of the Royal Commission on the Status of Women was childcare. We have not fulfilled that promise. It may take a pandemic to fulfill that promise. It's not that this is unknown. It's not that we don't know that childcare is a ramp for women's labor market attachment, and it has all kinds of salutary outcomes for kids and so on and so on and so on. So in this particular moment, when we think about childcare 
as needing an architecture, we have some tools at our disposal. So in the most recent federal election, your government had as part of its platform that it was going to introduce, it was going to create a national child care secretariat to move towards creating a national system of child care. We have seen a kind of collaborative federalism and setting aside of both ideological and partisan concerns and a rolling up of the sleeves to say, how, we're all in this together. How do we collaborate in order to serve one another and to protect one another? So we have a moment where we can use that spirit and that architecture to say, let's appoint this secretariat. Let's use the expert panel on childcare that was created a year and a half ago that already exists and has been doing some of this work. Let's work with provinces and territories and Indigenous partners to say, how do we build not just the childcare systems that exist, but build them out? Building a childcare system, it will involve built infrastructure, it will involve roads, it will involve cleaners, it will involve early childhood educators, it will involve teaching those people, it will involve not just women's employment, but it will have the effect, and certainly in early childhood education, of stimulating female employment in that sector. And it will also allow more families to go into the labor market. And the returns on that are the long-term win because the investments that you make in early childhood education and care, if they draw more women into the labor market, those women pay more taxes, they earn more money. That money goes back into the coffers of both the government and in terms of spending in their local businesses and their local stores. And that builds the kind of growth and sustainability that I think we hope to return to. It's interesting you note that this year is the 50th anniversary of the Royal Commission on the Status of Women, because fast forward to recent years, and the OECD publishes reports saying, if you want to focus on social mobility, childcare is the answer. And so we see recurring recommendations over decades that are calling for the very same thing, and we have not yet gotten to a place where we can credibly say we're doing enough. You also call for a unique funding stream, and and I take it from your earlier comments that it's because of the very unique nature of childcare for contributing to the economy more broadly and the need to have plans in place early for childcare so that the economy can better recover and, and women who have been disproportionately impacted by the recession will be able to come back in a more ready way. You got it. <laughs> You're looking at the overarching stra- strategy. Are you looking at specific dollar figures? So the impetus behind this particular briefing report that my colleagues and I put together was to say, here's what we're observing. Here are our concerns about social infrastructure generally. Here are our concerns also about what we called social solidarity fatigue. Because, you know, at the beginning of all of this, we're all in it together. We're staying home. We're, as my grandmother would have said, we're carrying on for Canada. <laughs> but that can fatigue over time. We're now in week six, and it's, it is not easy. If that social solidarity starts to fatigue, the capacity to sustain it will also hinge on people's sense that the recovery and the stimulus is fair. And fairness, in part, has to hinge on our collective recognition of the ways in which we've undervalued care, both at home, but also in the paid labor market, and that our redress for the vulnerabilities that that undervaluation has produced has to be a rethinking and a fairness rethinking about building that care 
or I'm calling care architecture, we can call it whatever we want. The purpose of the report was not to say, here's a dollar figure. The purpose of the report was to say, here's a diagnosis. Here is, here's the secretariat that's already been planned. It's one mechanism to use, and it should exist, I think, at the center of our step-down planning in recovery. And then let that secretariat and that expert panel and the, the, the huge expertise of providers and municipal, provincial, territorial, and indigenous governance decide what that's going to look like and collaborate on what that's going to look like. And let's be clear, it's not going to be cheap. The thing is, good care is not cheap and cheap care is not good. And that's clearly a moral and collective choice that we make. But I think it's also one that we're arriving at in terms of thinking about how do we build for 10 years, for 20 years to build a sustainable economy that values the people who are part of it. We have been taking steps to varying degrees to get there over the last five years. And in 2015, we promised to deliver additional dollars into the childcare system. And we saw agreements with provinces and seven and a half billion dollars more than otherwise would have been in the system. Absolutely. We saw an expansion of the Canada Child Benefit System, which has helped bring hundreds of thousands of kids out of poverty and helped many more families over and above that. We also saw an extension of parental leave from 12 months to 18 months. Now, this pandemic has laid bare the challenges to our EI system and and with our EI system, because that's also the delivery mechanism for maternity and parental benefits. There are obviously challenges there too. Can you walk us through the challenges for a parent, not only with the extension from, from 12 to 18 months, but the challenges with the existing system as we have it with yes i i will preface it by saying absolutely i think you know i have been a huge champion and supportive since i was at the caledon institute many many years ago of the canada child benefit and i think the changes to it have been instrumental in lifting families and kids out of poverty. So I certainly want to start by saying that's an important and ongoing piece of work. And it's also been an important tool in getting money out the door quickly in this pandemic to families. So that really matters. And certainly I'm I'm not suggesting that the investments in childcare, especially in, in budget 2017 and budget 2018, weren't really significant and an important starting point. And those bilateral agreements with provinces are the beginnings of building a, a broader system. So it's great that the infrastructure is, is there and we can build on it. In terms of the concerns that I have had about the changes to the maternity and parental leave system, you're right, I've been really critical of the 18-month extension. There are two different systems actually that exist in Canada. There's the, the federal employment insurance system that governs maternity and parental leave that gives compensation for it. And then Quebec has its own system called the Quebec Parental Insurance Program. So we can see that next door, if we're living in Ontario, next door has quite a different system. And the system in Quebec is much more generous. It has much more coverage. And it also has uh, many more fathers who also take the leave. So the system in Ontario, or in the rest of Canada, rather, outside of Quebec, Uh, is one in which access is quite low. So we see that about 30% of mothers don't have enough EI hours to even qualify. And we also see that the level of remuneration, so the amount that you get, is also quite low. It's capped at 55%. 
Um, so half of your earnings, and that's up to a ceiling. Uh, a lot of women are earning lower wages. So 55% of a low wage is not a significant level of remuneration. So the system itself is imperfect for the purpose of taking leave. And then we stretched an imperfect system. And so then we stretched an imperfect system. And just by contrast, so in rest of Canada, you need 600 hours to qualify for, and we'll just take maternity leave just for sake of simplicity. In Quebec, you need $2,000 of earned income. And the difference is that far, far more women qualify for the system to begin with in the Quebec model. And then the rate of remuneration is much higher. It's either 70 or 75%, depending on the path that you take. Whereas we're looking at 55% for 12 months in rest of Canada. So then you took the 12 months and you said, let's stretch it to 18 months at 33%, which effectively means that only those with significant incomes are actually going to be able to access it. And the EI system already is skewed towards sort of a standard worker model that is at least, you know, more than part-time so that you already over-include those have higher incomes in access to those benefits. But that's not my biggest critique of the 18 months. I'll tell you my biggest critique of the 18 months. Most of the international literature suggests that women's labor market attachment is quite sensitive to these changes in taxation and compensation policies. 18 months out of the labor market increases women's motherhood penalty in their wages over their life course. It increases women's labor market exit, which ultimately increases their and their children's lifetime risk of poverty. Most of the international studies suggest that around 12 to 15 months is about the sweet spot. And beyond that, you start to see the pernicious effects of labor market exit and uh, lack of advancement and wage penalties across the life course. So as a policy, I think the better approach is make the 12 months more generous, make it more accessible, make it more shared. If you're going to extend it, have a model where it is shared differently among parents so that it's not just one parent who is taking the disproportionate amount of the leave. I do think the building an attachment with your young one is not only a job for the mother, and I see more fathers want this, and the 18-month extension may be a way to set minimums in accordance with that international evidence that also allows families to build that attachment for both parents. Absolutely. And that is a really important policy feature. And one of the things that making it kind of a dedicated leave, a use it or lose it leave does, is it allows usually men to negotiate with their workplaces in ways that they might not be able to if there was a sense of, well, you know, your partner could take it or should I not take very much or all of the dances that we do, especially around the kind of identities that are formed around male labor market attachment. And it, and it may be that fathers really want to take it, but their workplaces are not very understanding. So it builds that in and can have significant effects on culture. And it also can change the way, you know, like HR professionals have the conversation. So you go in and you sit down with your HR person and you say, I'm having a baby and you're very excited. And their first default can be, so we'll assume you're taking the full six months. So it's not a negotiation. It becomes the kind of norm and then you can negotiate backwards if that's not how you wanna organize yourself. But I think 
those policy choices have different social effects. And it is a lot about negotiation with workplaces for men and for women, but sometimes they have a bit of a different quality. And when we look at program design, the Paul Martin plan was upended with a focus on cash for care, as you put it. And in some ways, the focus on 12 to 18 months is an extension of that. And in some ways, even the Canada Child Benefit is modestly an extension of that as well. Is there a problem with designing a universal program where it shifts the emphasis for a parent, often a mother, towards economic participation? There's a public value in that, obviously, and I don't want to be dismissive of that. And it's my wife wants to get back to work And I fully respect and appreciate that. I think there should be policies in place to allow her to do that. Similarly, though, where a mother may want to stay home for maybe not forever, but for a couple of years, for three years, I'm not sure. My my mom certainly did. She was a teacher, but took time off with all three of us. If the the incentives currently are cash for care, very expensive public child care, and we are undermining women's participation in the workforce... And we are undermining women's choices to get to get back to work as well, where many women are looking at the calculus and saying, well, after childcare costs, I'm, I'm barely earning any, anything at all. So at the same time, if we have a universal system for nonprofit or some mixture of nonprofit and, and private care, don't, don't the incentives cut the other way? So it's a really good question, and it is a, you're right, it is a question of design. We need to draw some distinctions between services versus cash. Let's say we both were getting the $2,000 CERB, and you and I decided, okay, we're going to go get childcare. Well, in Toronto, we'd have $200 left, right? right. Each of us would have $200 left paying. I mean, that's to give you a sense of how much it costs. Don't I know if, we it. Took, if we took our $4,000 and a bunch of other people took their $4,000, we could actually build services. And that would be a lot cheaper for each of us to access than that model. So I think we need to make a distinction around what that cash looks like. Now, you're absolutely right. Raising kids is hard and it's really expensive. And as I've said, the Canada Child Benefit is an excellent tool. It scales out at a high level of income and it is quite a generous benefit and it is completely non-stigmatizing in delivery. All you have to do is file your taxes. So that is sort of a a cash transfer. It's almost like a guaranteed income. Yeah, it's a basic income for, for kids, for sure. It's a basic income for kids. So it's not an either or. And I think in policy terms, we think about either we do cash for care like this, or we do childcare services. And it's not an either or. I think the thing that we need to reflect on is how the policies talk to each other. So if we have a system that says, well, you could take up to 18 months of leave, so we don't invest in the really expensive part of childcare, which is zero to 18 months. After that, it's actually cheaper. So if we're using our maternity and parental leave policies as a way not to invest in childcare, we're not doing each other any favors. But we can do both. And I think the struggle that many tax scholars and economists have is Of course, we want to have generous maternity and parental leave benefits because women's labor market attachment is so sensitive to changes in in taxation policy. When we have policies that are sort of caregiver policies, they can have the effect of discouraging women's labor market entry, even when they want to go back. Which is absolutely unacceptable. So my view is we build good systems that talk to each other and 
if you want childcare for your child, you should have it just like you should be able to send your child to JK and SK and grade one through grade 12 and post-secondary. We need to think about it as wraparound rather than as somehow discretionary um, and optional in the early years, which are in fact the years where your brain is doing all this growing and you're learning and you're absorbing the world. All the arguments have been well canvassed about the beneficial effects of the socialization and, and poverty reduction and so on. But it's never the case that childcare replaces parenting, just as it's the case, not the case that your teachers are replacing your parenting when your kids go to school. Those are relationships that they build, but parents are always at the core of, of sustaining and nurturing and growing their children, and maybe they have a bigger community around them to do it. So when we speak of universal childcare, we talk about affordability, accessibility, but we also talk about quality. And you've pointed to Quebec, as a very good example of increasing women's participation. I have read some work from Kevin Milligan that cast some doubt on the quality question, mm -hmm. which seems to me maybe not insurmountable if we add more resources to that system. But do you see similar challenges to other universal models elsewhere? Or are, are, are there examples of universal models with properly resourced that, that don't suffer from the same quality problems? I have great respect for my colleague, uh, Kevin Milligan. I think the study that you're pointing to was well debated at the time that it came out and there have been subsequent follow-ups. All of our systems are works in progress, right? So if we look to our healthcare system, there are variances across systems and across the country in terms of quality, in terms of accessibility, in terms of affordability and all of the things. And that is a universal system. None of us would say, let's jettison the system or very few of us at any rate would say, let's jettison the system because of those inconsistencies. Rather, I think we'd say, how do we work with the, the skills and the people and the knowledge and the vision that we have to build it out? And so I think that um, Quebec has had some real struggles and inconsistencies. So there, the Centre de Petite Enfance have been comparatively, uh, had better results. There's been a much bigger mix of public and private care um, in Quebec in recent years, and there's some evidence that's emerging that some of the quality of care hinges on it's not-for-profit versus profit status. So all of the things that one might see also in other sort of care settings. Where sure, you I mean, you call them rightly para-public essential services, yeah. and we see the same problems with for-profit long-term care homes right now. Yeah. And the quality improves when you're not trying to siphon resources out of the system for profit. Absolutely. So there's inconsistency in our kind of values when it comes to parapublic programming. So we see education in 96% of us send our kids to public schools. And so we don't see a lot of room for a hybridized model there. And in fact, we might find it really hard to think about our kids public elementary school education is somehow a, a for-profit enterprise, but we also see that it needs improvement. We need to think about it in the sense that we think about it in education, in the sense that we think about it in healthcare, that we have expertise, that we have a sort of core set of values, that we can bring in expertise from outside of that, that we can welcome other relationships, and that we can build it together, and that it's not a finished project. It's always an evolving project, and we can always learn more and do better.
I also think of it from the perspective of generational fairness, that when you look at federal spending over the last four decades, and you look at federal taxation over the last four decades, and you look at the opportunities that a young person has today versus 40 years ago, young people face incredible challenges. And childcare, in many respects, is the best place policy solution to help address those challenges. It really is. I'm a professor. I teach in social policy. And so I was teaching a fourth year social policy seminar. This term, we had to end early because pandemic. And we we spent a lot of the term talking about federalism, talking about concepts of social citizenship. We've spent a lot of the term talking about basic income. We spent a lot of the term trying to talk about and think about how do systems change? And in fact, where we had arrived before the pandemic was in a place of thinking about the kind of path dependence that we have. So when you're thinking about the world of possibilities, where could we go? You tend to follow that path and maybe move some bushes or replant some things along the way, but you don't decide to to turn left or turn right. And of course, the pandemic emerged, and all of a sudden, we are doing policy in a completely different way. And we have an opportunity to actually take new ideas or take ideas that we've been thinking about for a long time and try that hard turn. I think we're starting to see some of that, but it is, it's a small window. It's a small moment for that kind of imagining so that 10 years from now, we can look back at this much like we did in the post-war period. And I'm not, I don't love the war metaphor, but we spent a lot of time in that period following the depression and into the war thinking about What's the social compact? What's the the outcome that we want for our society building back from this? And it was, you know, in the U.S., the GI Bill, and we had housing for returning soldiers, and we had educational opportunities for returning soldiers, and we made different choices about what that compact would be. And this may be one of those moments, or it may be a moment to imagine how we get there at any rate. At a minimum, it has made many of us rethink the value of care and care work because it hasn't been invisible. Absolutely. And it's also been so palpable in so many households, in households where two parents, for example, are still working remotely, trying to manage childcare in that context where both are expected to have FaceTime and and deadlines. It is a very different negotiation and the kind of productivity that we can expect of each other under those circumstances is considerably reduced. You know, I've been trying to do a mental calculation. You know, if your kid is under five, it's like every year under five, you have to take 10% off of your expectation of your productivity over the course of that day. So I have a three-year-old and a four-month-old. So you're at at like 20%. (laughs) Well, thankfully, my my wife is a professor at George Brown and a chef, and she is on parental leave right now because we have a four-month-old. Had, if Crawford were a year old and Amy were back at work, or she went back earlier the last time, so if he were, I don't know, maybe eight months old and she was back at work, our productivity would be nil, I think, in many <laughs> respects, uh, where we both had to cope with work, but also cope full-time with parenting. And I will say it is a challenge even with Amy doing so much work looking after both Mac and Crawford because my committee meetings, because people are across the country in different time zones matter. And 
getting everyone on the same page, my committee meetings at times are 5 to 7 p.m., 6 to 8 p.m. And I'm looking at it and going, how am I supposed to participate? I, I can't expect my wife to do bedtime with a three-year-old and a four-month-old. My parents aren't able to help because of physical distancing. I can't be on a public meeting and doing bedtime at the same time. So uh, it, it, no question. And, and we're less impacted because of Amy's current work arrangement. I can't imagine how people are trying to manage with two kids or with one kid, but where folks are both working. You have how many kids? I have two boys, 17 and 13. And uh, how are you managing? I would say that much like teaching my 16 year old how to drive, uh, homeschooling is maybe not a relationship building experience. For us. <laughs> it's been challenging. I think they're, they're very good sports about the whole thing. I think those are are difficult parental moments through this crisis. And they're small compared to the magnitude of what most are dealing with, but they are still sort of moments of grief that I think we have to acknowledge in one another that we're all experiencing on different scales. I appreciate your work. I I certainly appreciate your continued focus on improving childcare and supports for not only parents, but also the kids themselves. And I also appreciate I think it's it's not done enough in some ways, but the ability to compliment and criticize at the same time <laughs> is incredibly important for moving policies forward in, in many respects. So I appreciate that as well. And, and thanks for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. It was lovely chatting with you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. The childcare conversation is so important for our society more broadly, but also very important for me personally, having young kids at home. So I really appreciate Kate taking the time. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes. And if you have an idea for a topic or a guest going forward, reach out to me on social media at B-E-Y Nate.